Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great ideas can often come from a chance event or a eureka moment, and award-winning podcast creator Guy Raz has interviewed more than 200 of the most successful innovators across the world, from the founders of Five Guys and Airbnb to Bumble and Netflix. In this episode, he speaks to Carl Miller about their unexpected paths to success and his own journey into becoming one of the most successful podcast hosts in the world. We hope you enjoyed, and if you do, you can find a link for the How I Built This Book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Guy, I heard you described by Tim Ferriss, no less, just a moment ago, as the Michael Phelps of podcasting. Welcome back to your natural habitat, I suppose. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, that was um, very generous of Tim Ferriss to write. And, you know, um, look, I'm very honored and obviously I appreciate these accolades, you know, the most popular this or the Michael Phelps of that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a person writing words down on paper and ordering those words. And um, and then, you know, we all latch onto those words. You know, we, we read about, you know, other programs or people who are described in certain ways. And, and obviously, as I say, I'm, I'm very honored, but I try not to take it too seriously because, um, you know, popularity and success is a fleeting. And um, what might be, you know, what might be successful one day is disastrous and a failure the next day. And I, I try to take it in stride. But what I would say is that um, it's it really isn't a different technology, right? Like human beings have always basically been able to consume information in a few ways. We can see a still image, we can see a moving image, we can hear something, you know, we can taste something, touch something. I mean, if it was around campfires in the Neolithic era, and then it, you know, it became, you know, the wireless radio, under, you know, when Marconi sent that transmission and, and the BBC and Lord Reith, you know, created this amazing entity and then you know and then television and today it's 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 still audio right it's it's not any different it's just the way it's delivered so podcasting is radio radio is storytelling around the campfire it's the same thing it's just the way we're delivering it and packaging it and i think um i think that's that's exciting i mean i i I love that i love that the barrier to entry has essentially been eliminated anybody can go and start something and put something out there it doesn't mean that you're going to get you know millions of listeners but it does mean that you have the opportunity to put something out there and and to try and create something and i think that that's what makes podcasting so exciting for those entrepreneurs who are would-be podcasters now you know, and that barrier, you know, they can see that barrier to entry has just plummeted. They can do it. 
what advice would you give them now about kind of trying to break through all that noise? Are there kind of unutilized affordances of the genre, do you think, that they can... How do they do something new now that everyone is doing it? I think the thing to focus on is not about the money side. The reality is very, very few people make money in podcasting. There are one million plus podcasts in the English language, okay? You can fit the number of podcasts with more than 50,000 downloads a week. You can fit on the top of a pinhead. It is a tiny number of podcasts. It is a few hundred out of those millions. And 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 the number of podcasts with a million or more downloads a week are even smaller. It's It's fewer than 50 or 60, maybe, at most. It's a tiny, tiny number of podcasts. Very few people are making money or significant money from podcasting. And what I would say to people who want to start a podcast is don't go into it thinking that it's going to be the way you are going to make make money. I, I would think of it rather as an engagement tool, a way to talk about an idea you have, and eventually a way to talk about a book you have or a, or a product or service you offer or educational tool you offer. If you think about Let's say you have a podcast and you've got 500 people that listen to it. You have 500 downloads a week. And you might be thinking to yourself, God, I'm so disappointed. I only have 500 downloads a week or I only have 250 downloads a week. Well, then ask yourself this question. If you walked outside to a park, if you walked to Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park and you stood on top of a soapbox and you started talking about your ideas, do you really think 250 people would gather around you? Probably not. So now think about your podcast again. You have 250 people. If you were asked to speak in front of 250 people, would you take that speaking offer? Most people would. That's a lot of people. So having 250 people who are actively engaged coming to your show every week or 500 people, that's a lot of people. And those are the people who are going to buy your book or are going to talk about your book or going to talk about your show or going to be talking about you know, the consulting service you offer, whatever it might be. And so I, I always say, think about your podcast as an engagement tool and really think about it as something you love and something that you love doing for the sake of doing it, not for the sake of trying to make money from it. And in telling their stories, and I, I suppose both for the podcast guy and, and the book, what do you try and show to the to the reader or the listener? What are you trying to expose in those stories? I'm trying to to show people that that these incredibly successful entrepreneurs, whether it's Richard Branson or Howard Schultz of Starbucks or Sarah Blakely of Spanx or the late Tony Shea of Zappos or any of these people that so many of us hear about, Joe Malone, you know, David Constantine, who founded Lush, um, that they are actually really just like us, that they are not superheroes, that we shouldn't put them on pedestals that they have had moments where they have been lying on the bathroom floor in the fetal position crying, that they have anxiety, that they have sleepless nights, that they are not made of Teflon, that their journeys were really hard. And the reason why I want to tell that story is because I want people to see themselves in, in these people that so many of us admire and sometimes I think wrongly um, venerate. I want people to understand that, you know, may, maybe you won't create a billion dollar company. And that's actually not really the point. Um, and it's not, it's not what I'm trying to encourage people to think of. I'm trying to encourage people to, 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 to believe that they can put their ideas out into the world in some way. It may not be 
a hundred million dollar company. It may not even be a million dollar company, but it might just be something that enables somebody to pursue a sustainable life. Maybe it's a a design company that they found or a website that they build or something. I, I'm trying to show people that putting your ideas out into the world is within reach. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be particularly, you know, creative or special or there, that doesn't, I don't believe that that exists. I don't believe that people are born with these gifts. I think that the ability to create something and to put yourself out there is a mindset. And that's what I'm trying to do through the stories I tell on the show through these amazing entrepreneurs. So does that mean you're telling hero stories actually to make them less like heroes to us, to actually make them more human? Yeah. And I think hero, I mean, heroes journeys, I think are human stories. I mean, we all have our heroes journeys. I mean, you think about like Ray and Star Wars or Harry Potter, right? I mean, um, you know, or anybody listening to this, like everybody has had incredibly challenging moments in their life. They've dealt with hardship. They've dealt with the death of people they love. They've dealt with major setbacks and failures, um, you know, jobs they didn't get, um, you know, companies or businesses that, that they that they may have tried to start that, that failed. Um, the that's what I'm trying to show. I'm trying to show that that the idea of a hero's journey is not specific or unique just to these founders, but that we all, all of us have a story. All of us have our own journey. We are by nature the hero of our own story, right? That was That's what human consciousness is. We are constantly looking at, at the world through our own movie, which is, you know, our, our eyes are our own, our movie camera. And I'm trying to get inside the cockpit of you know, Richard Branson's head or, or James Dyson's head and, 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 you know, the founders of, of Airbnb or, or whoever it is. And I'm trying to see the story from their perspective. Um, and I'm trying to understand that person's worldview and, and experience as fully and intimately and granularly, granular, granularly, in a granular way. Can't say that word today. Um, as possible, because I want, um, you know, I, I don't want, I want an unvarnished look at how they made decisions and how they made mistakes and the setbacks they faced. And with the hope that people listening will see something of themselves in that person. Do you think, do you think that's why so many people, and I think particularly in America, but across the world as well, are so drawn to these stories in that, there's a kind of tantalizing dualism there. Um, kind of on the one hand, these people, as you so artfully it kind of you know show in all these stories, are so like us in so many ways. But on the other, their lives are nothing like us now. You know that their wealth and success and fame are stratospherically distant from us, and that in a way that's a kind of reminder to people that that whatever their lives are like now, there's kind of they they have in them in each of us, the characteristics or at least potential to, to, to radically change what our lives are really like? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. You know, I, I think that there's no question that, um, you know, there's, there's an expectation that a listener can have when they, when they hear an episode of How I Built This. You, you, you know from the outset that the person you're hearing succeeded. I mean, we're talking to Stuart Butterfield of Slack. Well, you know that Slack is a 
huge company that just sold to Salesforce. He was on the show two years ago. Or, you know, um, I might interview the, um, I recently interviewed the founder of a, a brand called The Lip Bar, which is a, a small lipstick brand based out of Detroit. Um, it's a black-owned business founded by a, a woman named Melissa Butler. Still a small business, only, you know, only $7 million in revenue a year. Um, but it, it it is a success. You know, she has five or six employees. It's a growing brand. Um, the idea really is to, you know, use these stories of people who are prominent as kind of um, examples of, of, of possibility. And again, not, not the possibility of wealth or a certain lifestyle, um, but the possibility of creating something that has an impact in some way on the world. And look, I focus mainly on consumer products and brands and brands and services that are consumer facing, you know, things that you can buy on the high street, um, services that my listeners, our listeners will recognize, whether it's Slack or Atlassian or Dropbox or Lush or Joe Malone or, you know, a Dyson vacuum or, um, you know, Marcia Kilgore's brands, uh, you know, Bliss and, and Soap and Glory and, and Beauty Pie and others. I, I'm trying to, it, you know, what I'm trying to do is to to say that these, you know, these stories and these experiences that these people have, they are obviously unique to them, but they are also examples of you know, ways we can look at the world and ways we can think about our own creativity. And w- what I try to focus on with every person I interview isn't their success, right? Because success is not that interesting. We know that the person coming onto the show has succeeded. What I'm much more interested in is failure and the series of failures and setbacks that they faced and the bad decisions they made over time, because that's really where we learn from them when we hear about the mistakes they made and the setbacks they had. And and my hope is that by hearing that, we can start to work through our own challenges and problems we're trying to solve in whatever capacity we find ourselves in. Because the show is not, it's not just for people who are starting their own businesses or have their own businesses. It's for people who work in big organizations and are trying to navigate, you know, internal politics or are trying to change the way they their company operates or works. I mean, it's it's designed for people to think, you know, creatively, whether they're working on their own or within a larger organizational structure. Okay, well, we will come back to success, because I think there's much more to be to be discussed there. But before we do, Guy, let's just move over some of these kind of themes or lessons or characteristics that you you draw out across the book um, that, that 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 seem to kind of strongly come out in the stories that you tell. Um, the first one, and probably where we always begin, is the idea. Um, and you, you kind of wrote in the book a, a, a sentence which I love. The intersection of personal passion and problem solving is where good ideas are born and lasting businesses are built. Um, I wonder if you could just kind of tell us a bit about that and and this kind of you know this kind of eureka versus analytic problem solving process which which you kind of look at from from story to story yeah, I mean obviously every business starts um in a different way, and ideas we all have ideas right like I think that I think that anybody listening to this has had some idea at some point in their life, and probably some people have had an idea and then saw that idea 
um, in a brand that, you know, that was on the, on the shelf of a store, you know, 10 years later. And they thought, I had that idea first. Um, ideas are, um, they're not easy to come up with, but they are the easiest part of starting a business because ideas, ideas only matter if they can be executed well. So, you know, some people, the idea comes to them because they have identified a problem that they have and they want to solve it. Or they've identified a problem that not only that they have, that they want to solve, but they realize that other people have that problem too. Some people, um, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about gaps in the marketplace. Eric Ryan, the founder of Method Soaps, which is a huge soap brand, he went on to found Ollie, which is a vitamin company, and Welly, which is a first aid kit company. He was working at a... Um, uh, an advertising agency in the Bay Area in the late 1990s, but he really wanted to start his own business. And he would literally walk through the aisles of supermarkets and just look at products and just look at them. You know, he would, he would do this for months and months until he, he started to spend a lot more time in the cleaning supplies aisle, only to come to the the conclusion that the sort of the natural organic products that were available which at that time weren't that many in the late 90s, um, they weren't that good. They didn't actually clean that well. And as a result, the marketplace hadn't yet fully developed for natural and organic cleaning products. So he came up with this idea, which would become Method Soaps. Um, and it was a plant-based, natural, and organic product, but that wasn't what they were advertising. They were advertising its efficacy. It's, it's you know, how well it cleaned. And also, they were advertising the beauty of the product, they decided to make a beautiful bottle. They decided that they that instead of the hand soap that you kind of hide under the sink, they would make a bottle that was so beautiful you would actually um, leave that hand soap pump next to the sink. And that's where they put all their energy. Now, it was a natural and organic product, but that wasn't what their focus was on. And then, you know, there are other, um, you know, there are other, uh, products and services that come about because people, you know, ran into a problem, um, and they 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 wanted to improve on that problem. I mean, um, you know, you think of a a, a brand like Away Suitcases. Um, I mean, Jen Rubio, the, the co-founder of that brand, um, she was at an airport with the same suitcase, and it fell apart at the airport, and that was the genesis of an idea that she started to really think about. You know, and and, and she realized that there was a category, which was luggage, that that was not fully developed, where you could find an opening to create a whole new segment. It's the same story with a guy named Peter Rahal. He 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 was into CrossFit and ate a paleo diet, but he couldn't find an, an energy bar that, you know, he could eat after his, his workouts because most energy bars at the time were made with grains or sugar or other products that he didn't eat. If you are on a paleo diet, you don't eat beans, you don't eat grains, you don't eat dairy, you don't eat any refined sugars. It's a very restricted diet. So he came up with an energy bar that was made from egg whites and dates and cashews and he called it RX Bar, and that is how he created that product, um, which went on <laughs> to sell to, to to a huge American um, cereal manufacturer called Kellogg's for you know seven hundred million dollars, uh, eight or nine years later. But that was really the beginning. I mean, he identified a problem that he had, and he believed that other people had as well, and so that was 
the genesis of his idea and really the genesis of so many ideas um, of the entrepreneurs that I've, I've profiled. Do you have any advice just, just practically whilst we stay with ideas just one moment longer for for those kind of entrepreneurs where or proto entrepreneurs, I should say, where there's a lightning bolt that struck, they have a eureka moment. And when when they, they're in that moment where they kind of just have the idea, you know, and they have nothing else, they haven't got the network, they haven't got the product, they haven't got anything else, because I think there's quite often... I see kind of moments of sh- huge vulnerability there where, where the entrepreneur is almost like paralyzed. Like as soon as they, you know, they, they, they don't know who they can tell. You know, but if they don't tell anyone, then nothing ever happens. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's this, um, you know, it, and it can come from anywhere, you know, and, I, and usually it comes when you are searching for it. So, you know, you might be waiting in line for a coffee and you might, feel like something is 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 problematic about the experience there's some inefficiency in the experience maybe the line is moving too slowly or maybe um you know the the way that the coffee shop has structured its you know workflow isn't quite right and some idea comes to you where you say i can actually help them solve this idea or i have some system or some product or service that can solve it and when you, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you would go to the library and you would start to search out any information you could. But today, you know, we have this portal of infinite knowledge at our fingertips called a smartphone and obviously the Internet. And that's obviously in almost always the first step now where you, you know, when you have an idea, you begin to kind of search out what it would take to kind of start the idea. Um what what I found with most every entrepreneur I've interviewed is that when they land on an idea that eventually they pursue, it's something that usually almost always consumes them. They cannot stop thinking about it. it it's something that they believe they have to bring out to the world. And they're so driven by that idea that it's almost impossible to stop them. You know, I interviewed... Um, I interviewed the founder of a company called Walker & Sons. His name is Tristan Walker. And Tristan created a razor called the Bevel Razor. And the Bevel Razor is a single straight razor, right? It, for most – many men who shave, if you look at your blade, it usually has four or five blades on it, right? And and right, And that shaves – it's designed to shave actually under your skin. It actually shaves so close that it goes under your skin, cuts the hair, and then you've got a very sh- close shave. Well, that's really problematic if you have curly hair. And many black and brown men have curly hair. And as a result, when they use those razors, their hair tends to grow back into the skin. And it creates this very painful skin um, condition called razor bumps. Many black and brown men, um, you know, experience this. And Tristan Walker, who's a black man, knew this was a problem. And he went to tons of investors and he he he, he laid out his vision for what he wanted to create, which was a, a, a razor that would solve this problem that would be designed for men with curly hair, mainly men of color. And look, the reality was he had a really hard time getting that money because most of the investors he was going to were white men who didn't couldn't understand why this was a problem because they hadn't experienced it. But, you know, 13% of the U.S. population is black. And, you know, 
a, a growing and, and soon to be majority percentage of the American population is our people of color. And Tristan Walker knew that this was a problem for millions of men and women who shave in the United States. By the way, he also knew that black consumers spend um, a disproportionately higher amount of, of their money on beauty products than any other ethnic group or racial group in the United States. But he had a very hard time getting people to see that. The, what kept Tristan Walker going and what eventually enabled him to start that business, which is now he, he eventually sold it to Procter & Gamble, but he is still the, the CEO, was this unshakable belief that this was a problem that needed to be solved and that if he couldn't solve it, nobody could solve it because he, he fundamentally knew this was a problem that many people had and many people would welcome a solution to that problem. And that's what kept him going. That's That was what was driving him. That's what, what you know, was upset. he was obsessed with for months and months and months as he developed this idea and then began to design this blade and then eventually figured out how to bring it to market. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv let's move from tristan walker's unshakable belief uh, guy to 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 stuart butterfield's i think very luckily shakable belief because because another of your characteristics is the lucky pivot or also the potential i suppose of being able to shed an idea for a better idea when that when that comes along um how important is that? So, so it, it kind of feels on the one hand, you know, we need to have unshakable belief sometimes, but on the other hand, we need to also actually be very, very willing to, to, to be pragmatic in the face of what we're actually seeing. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the real answer is there's no real way to know. There's no scientific formula. It's so much of it is, is about in, intuition and 
about luck. You know, there are businesses that I have profiled. We have, I, I just profiled of the founder of a brand called Kodiak Cakes. It is the second best-selling pancake mix in the United States. It's a $200 million company now. They make protein, protein-packed protein uh, pancake mix. Joel Clark, who started this company, struggled for 15 years. I mean, he, to the point where he opened a second new business selling cookies to try and fund the pancake business, the cookie business went under, it almost took the pancake business under... He bought a piece of property to see if that would be a good investment. He bought it before the property market collapsed in 2008. He almost lost everything. He took a job running a healthcare company to try to keep the pancake business going, constantly losing money. He took out, his dad took out a mortgage, a second mortgage on his home to give Joel a loan. I mean, it's just an endless series of failures over 15 years. Anybody else would have dropped that idea. Somehow, Joel Clark didn't drop that idea. And it took him 15 years to come up with the idea of adding protein powder to the pancakes. And that was a game changer. Now, a lot of people, as I say, would have given up earlier, rightfully so, with with very good reason and focused on something else. Um, you know, I, I, I told the story of Stonyfield yogurt. Um, Gary Hirschberg was hemorrhaging money for the first 10 years of that business. I mean, it was one disaster after another. You know, the cows wouldn't produce milk, the dairy... Um, all the equipment at the dairy broke down for six months. Another dairy kicked them out. Um, another dairy tried to basically buy them out um, and extort them. I mean, it was just one disaster after the next to make yogurt that nobody was buying. Well, eventually it became the best-selling organic yogurt brand in the country, but it took him 10 years. So it's very hard to know when to give up. In the case of Stuart Butterfield, his dream was to build a massive multiplayer online game like a League of Legends or World of Warcraft, these games that became very successful. And Stewart had raised considerable money to do this because he had previously started a, a, a company called Flickr, which was a photo sharing site that he had sold to Yahoo in the early 2000s. So he, he had a, a track record for success. So he was able to raise money to create a video game company, and it was going to be called Glitch. He, he recruited the best people from all over the country. They moved to the Bay Area with their families, um, and they worked on this game, and it was a beautiful game. It was like way ahead of its time. In 2010, it was, or 2011, it was just an incredible, beautiful game. They had a, a model where you would pay $70 a year. The problem is they is that when you create a massive multiplayer online game and not enough people come, it's not massive. And that's what happened. They couldn't attract enough users. As beautiful as it was, as amazing as it was, and, and the company was hemorrhaging money. And he realized that if he didn't shut this thing down soon, his investors would be wiped out. So he, he, he wanted to at least return some of the money to his, his investors. So he decided that he had to shut down the company and he had to let everybody go. And it was... he he you know, described this as the hardest day of his professional life. He spent six weeks trying to um, place every person that he had laid off in other companies around the Bay Area, which he successfully did to his credit. Um, but as they were kind of sweeping out the office and trying to figure out the next the next step, a friend of his um, who had visited Stuart and knew about Glitch um, asked if he could borrow this internal messaging system that they had created 
for the product. It was a, a system that allowed the product developers and the software engineers and the sales reps and the editorial people and you know everybody to communicate internally. It was just something they invented for their own use. It was an afterthought. So Stuart said, sure, knock yourself out. Here it is. And within weeks, um, you know, in that grapevine world of Silicon Valley, people heard about this internal messaging system and wanted to use it. Well, long story short, that was the product. And he, he, Stuart realized that <laughs> that actually was the product. It wasn't the video game. And the product became something they named Slack. Um, and, and so that was the pivot. He had to then reconstitute his team and focus on this entirely new product that was never intended to be a product. It was always intended to be an internal messaging system. And that became Slack. That became the best-selling, you know, one of the best-selling business software apps in history, recently sold to Salesforce for, you know, $27 billion. Um, so, you know, again, he it wasn't clear to him that it was right under his nose. It took a little bit of kind of connecting the dots and then realizing that that actually was the thing they should focus on and not the video game. And, and, and you know, that's the, the rest is history. <laughs> well, Guy, if, next, I'd, I'd like us to turn from entrepreneurs to entrepreneurialism um, and kind of discuss kind of w- what role that has really today and, and, and in all of our lives, whether we become entrepreneurs or not. Um, so, you know, all these people you've spoken about, um, in a way, they're kind of they're all brilliant problem solvers, of course, we've just discussed that. But do you think there are certain kinds of problem that this kind of consumer facing, charismatic kind of force of personality driven kind of change is actually good at solving? And do you think there are other kinds of problems that it's actually not very good at solving? Well, I would say, first of all, that not certainly not all the entrepreneurs I've interviewed are charismatic, you know, and I don't think charisma is a um, is a prerequisite. You know, I think a lot of people grow into their charisma also as they become more confident and as they become, you know, they become more practiced in what they do. Um, so I don't I don't think that charisma is really necessarily a factor in the success of a, a product or a brand necessarily. But here's what I would say. Look, everybody, you know, everyone is solving a problem that isn't right in front of them. So, for example, you know, if it's the lip bar, um, here's the problem that Melissa Butler was was trying to solve. She's a black woman. She felt that the beauty industry wasn't speaking to women like her, that they weren't marketing their products toward women like her, and that they weren't creating bold, bright, colorful lipsticks that she and her friends loved to wear, you know, fuchsia and green and gold and black lipsticks. So that's that's why she created this product. She wanted to create a brand that what she felt spoke to women like her. Um, so that was the problem she was trying to solve. With, with with Andrea and Robin McBride, it's a similar story, but it was with wine. You know, they they are the lar- they they have the largest black-owned wine business in America and they believe that that wine, the wine industry, wasn't speaking to women of color, people of color, millennials, even women, and they wanted to create a brand that would would welcome all those folks in and say, you know, you can enjoy wine too, and it's great, and and we're going to tell you all about it. And so that was the problem they're solving, and I think all of those problems are worthy problems to to, to think about. You know, um, you know, Drew Houston created Dropbox because he the the problem he was trying to solve was how do you 
how do you travel with your data without you know bringing a bunch of hard drives with you? How do you store all of your content and and you know seamlessly allow allow you to to seamlessly move it from one device to the next? And that was the problem he was trying to solve. What what's become more more interesting to me in recent years, and certainly in the last year and and more, I would say, is this idea that entrepreneurship has the potential to solve bigger scale problems like world scale problems and i'm i'm particularly interested in entrepreneurs like pat brown the founder of impossible foods um pat brown was a stanford uh, biochemist he was a a really a brilliant researcher worked on cancer research um you know possibly would have won a nobel prize for the work he did on cervical cancer and hiv research in early in his career um he took a year sabbatical about 12 years ago and he spent that time thinking what can i do how can i use my knowledge to solve a real problem in the world and obviously he came uh, the problem he landed on was climate change and he he discovered at the time which he didn't know was that the consumption of livestock um, accounts for 15% of global carbon emissions. So all of the animals that we eat around the world, that produces more ca- carbon emissions than all of the transport combined. And he, he really began to think about how he could solve this problem. He, he, he didn't believe that he could get people to stop eating meat. Pat is a lifelong vegan or you know he's been a vegan for most of his adult life. And he he knew that he couldn't convince people to stop eating meat, especially in a developing world where more and more people are consuming more and more meat because they're, you know, becoming more and more prosperous and the middle class is growing. But he knew that with his biochemistry background, he could figure out how to engineer meat from plant-based products. He knew that there was a a protein called the loy the 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 soy the leg hemoglobin that was also found in the nodules of the root of a soy plant, the same protein found in animal muscle, that if you could isolate that protein from the soy plant nodule and replicate it, you could grow, you could create real meat. And he began to spend time on this problem, and it took him six or seven years, but eventually he created what is now known as impossible meat, impossible the impossible burger um, and the brand the company is impossible foods look the the company is probably valued at ten billion dollars. Pat Brown couldn't care less about the money. He lives in the same three bedroom condo that he's lived in with his wife since he became a professor at Stanford forty years ago he you know he's a if you saw him, he wears, you know, um, clothing from discount retail stores. You know, he's a very unassuming guy, but he's taking a big swing. You know, he is really swinging for the fences here because he believes that if he can get more and more people to consume plant-based meats, plant-engineered meat, um, he could have a huge impact on carbon emissions. And that's the kind of big idea, big picture thinking that I think I wish and I hope more and more entrepreneurs begin to think about um, as as they as they think about the things that they can can change in effect. Well, Guy, let's for our last question, take one more world eating, all encompassing problem, um, polarization. Uh, now, one thing I took when reading your book, and, uh, you know, uh, p- please let me know if this the, I misinterpreted this, but it quite often seemed that the opportunity for the entrepreneur was to kind of 
carve out a a previously underserved constituency and then kind of craft a product to answer that particular need that simply you know hadn't been answered to before even recognized by big companies um what is the potential do you think for entrepreneurism to kind of do the opposite of that to actually begin to try and knit together constituencies that that see far too much in how they're different from each other rather than how they might be in common. Do you, do you, do you, is there anything that you're seeing out there which can give us some optimism or hope uh, that, that that might be something we'd, we will see more risk taking and dynamism around in the in the you know in the months and years ahead? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a very very difficult and challenging moment, particularly in the United States. You know, I, I think if you look at a product, right, like, you know, like a, a vacuum cleaner or a wine bottle or, you know, a, a, a cosmetics brand, um, they are, on the face of it, they're neutral, right? They are neutral products. You go to the store and you buy method soap or whatever it might be. But, you know, increasingly what we are seeing, um, particularly in the United States, are consumers demanding that the brands they use take a stand on social and political issues, which I think is not surprising, um, given that, you know, it's a reflection of where our our society is, is sort of headed towards. I think that, you know, the, the reality of our of our situation, certainly in the United States, is is much more complex than we are able to discern at this moment. It's something that we'll be able to understand maybe in 50 or 100 years from now because so much of it isn't about the day-to-day quotidian political differences we have. They're about huge trends that are happening that we can't fully see yet, you know, income inequality, um, massive demographic shifts and changes, um, cultural changes that, um, you know, that that mean less to some people and more to other people um that are you know people are some people are less comfortable with other people are are natively comfortable with it you know digital technology is something that i mean even i even look at my own kids and the way they consume you know youtube and mobile video games and it drives me crazy you know as a as a as a middle-aged young middle-aged young but middle-aged man you know my mid 40s where I think is that the life they want to live, and and I, I was thinking about this the other day when I was I was talking with my wife about it, and you know it occurred to us that we parents we raise our children and prepare them for the world that we actually struggled through or worked through, when in fact that's not what we need to prepare them for. We need to prepare them for the world that they are going to face, but we just don't know what that is. You know, it's a world that is going to be much more digital, um, and and much more complex than the one we, we live in today. Um, I think there was a vision 20 or 30 years ago that the internet and digital technology would bring us all together. It would make the world smaller and it would create a deeper um, understanding. And quite the opposite has happened. Um, I think probably not to the surprise of some forward-thinking you know, observers and seers, but I think for many of us, it has been surprising. It's not, the outcome is not what we expected. And right now, it's very difficult to imagine a world where that polarization ends, but I believe it will happen. I mean, like any, any kind of cycle, um, you know, social cycle, we will see that change as well. But um, I'm afraid that we are 
you know, certainly in, in the United States and probably in the UK and in other Western countries, we're looking at, uh, you know, certainly a few more years, sadly, of of, of po- political polarization, social polarization until, um, you know, until probably, you know, older generations pass on, um, move on and and, you know, the world is populated by more and more younger people. Well, Guy, thank you so much. Um, This has been Guy Raz, and his wonderful new book is How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Uh, If you did enjoy today's podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends if you like as well.